0: That you would help us uh, with the remainder of this service to worship you, to praise you, to come into uh, this sanctuary and uh, to bring to you not just our triumphs, but also our tragedies and our trials, our sins and our struggles. I pray that this hour would recenter us towards a gospel hope that reminds us that Christ has defeated death, hell, and the grave forever, and that we have a God and Holy Spirit, you're our guide and our comforter, and you can, by your spirit, show us how to live. You can convict us of our sin. We need not put our trust in princes or presidents or bosses or uh, other people to, f- to fulfill our needs and our longings. We put our hope in you and in you alone. And Father, we pray that you would do a work as you promised to do in the Psalms of setting people free, of bringing justice to the oppressed, of taking away the tyranny of evil, and calming hearts that are anxious, and leading people who are lost to you and reminding us that we're going home and that you are going to reign forever and ever and ever. And so now in this life, as we live on this side of the Jordan, may we prepare our hearts and our minds uh, to listen to your word, but also, Father, would you do a work And showing us the goodness of Christ again this morning. May this short, short hour of worship uh, transform us. May it remind us that we're new creations in you. And for those who are hurting in this room right now, uh, for those who are in mental or spiritual pain or trauma, Jesus, I pray the, the salve of your mercy would be applied to every place it hurts. We pray in your name, amen. First Chronicles 10, uh, 8 through eleven 3. I'm gonna read the whole passage here. It's in your Bible, will also be on the screen. The next day... When the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. <coughs> But when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord. And he also consulted a medium. Seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people, Israel. And you shall be a prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sure the people in this day and age that were actually living through this were asking themselves the question, How did we possibly get here? I mean, they had asked for a king back in 1 Samuel 8 because they didn't want to trust Samuel, the priest, and they didn't want to trust God's word through the prophets. They wanted an earthly king. Give us a strong, valiant man. Give us a, a guy like Saul who's tall, who can lead us. That's what we want. We want to put our trust in princes. We don't want to put our trust in God. And God acquiesced. He said to Samuel, look, it's not... It's not you they're rejecting. It's actually me they're rejecting. Let's give them a king, and so they gave them Saul, and. In a myopic sense, here's how they got there. Saul was going to battle with the Philistines. He often would do that. You can think of modern day countries that will go to war with each other every generation or every decade or once every 20 years or whatever it is. That was the deal with the Israelites and the Philistines. Saul got backed up. The enemy army had kind of broken through. He got shot up with all of these archers. And so now he's shot up with these arrows and he begs his armor bearer, his probably 13, 14 year old boy who's keeping some of his weapons clean Clean, run me through, would you? I can't be taken hostage. And of course, the armor bearer said, no, no way. If I kill you, even in distress, people will kill me. And actually, that's what's happened in uh, 2 Samuel 1. Somebody actually tried to take credit for Saul's death, thinking it would bring him some kind of acclamation, and David actually executed him as his first act of being uh, the king. And and so it wasn't going to work. So the armor bearer said, I won't do it. So Saul said, Well, I'll do it myself. And he would take the sword. This is how it would work. You take the sword because often you're already shot up with arrows. You don't have the strength to actually run the sword through yourself. So you would take the sword and you would put it here on your heart. And then you would fall on it, literally fall on it. And your body weight would do the work that you and your biceps don't have the strength to do. And Saul was dead. And his reign was over. The next day they came up, they stripped him down, him and his sons, Jonathan and his other sons, stripped him down, cut off his head, and took his head probably on the pole and took it around, if you look at the text, interestingly, to their other idols. Uh, Almost like a sacrifice. Look at verse 9. The Philistines carry the good news to the idols and to the people. Look at who we killed. This Saul, this reign of terror. He's our sacrifice to you, the idols. Uh, They took his armor and they put it in his... Their trophy room, the temple of Dagon. And actually, Dagon shows up somewhere else in Scripture. If you remember 1 Samuel 5, uh, when they capture the ark, they put it in this temple with all of the other idols that they have. They were just collecting things that they thought would appease all the different gods that they were serving. And Dagon, 1 Samuel 5, 6, he fell down and his arms and his head broke off. Well, apparently they repaired him and they built a new temple to Dagon. And they took his armor and they put it there, but their bodies were left. And finally, some valiant men broke through, grabbed their bodies, buried them under this oak at Jabesh, And there's a transition in leadership from Saul to David. Now, when you say, how did we get here? That's the historical perspective. But anytime you find yourself in a situation which is difficult, we must ask the spiritual question, how did we get here? Because here's what we typically do. We typically bifurcate out. Uh, where we are in our lives, thinking that our spiritual and our theological underpinnings don't have any influences on how we ended up here. And that's often not the case. It's almost always the case that our belief system has led us to a place where we can kind of say, how did we get here? So what happened with Saul, you know the story, but let me just summarize it for you a little bit. Saul's rule was characterized by failure and rebellion. He directly disobeyed God in 1 Samuel 15, breaking God's law by offering a sacrifice that only priests were supposed to sacrifice. And he he was not willing to wait on the priest to get there. That's 1 Samuel 13, 1 through 14. He was visited by evil spirits on several occasions and welcomed them, 1 Samuel 16, 18, 10, 19, 9. He spent much of his time and his energy and the resources of the kingdom and the government trying to kill David because he was a threat, or at least he thought he was. First Samuel 18, 10, 19, 10, 23, 14. He even tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, who was a friend of David, one of his best friends. And just think about that for a second. How far do you have to go in your uh, depravity to think, I'm gonna kill my own son, 1 Samuel 20, 33. He went on a couple chapters later to kill 85 innocent priests and their families. 1 Samuel 22, he consulted a witch and asked her to conjure up Samuel from the dead. We'll talk about that in a second. 1 Samuel 28, and he finally ended his life by committing suicide. But if you look at the text, how did we get here theologically from a spiritual perspective? You'll see verse 13, which says, so Saul died for his breach of faith for his breach of faith that's the operative words in other words he devoided the covenant contract that he had with God he breached his faith and how did he do that well faith means here's a great thing about faith faith means you don't have to take matters into your own hands faith means you don't have to have it all figured out Faith means we get to be led by the God of the universe. We don't have to orchestrate everything. We don't have to manipulate everything. We don't have to do away with our enemies like his enemy was David. We don't have to take all the matters into our hands and try to solve everything. Provide our own sacrifices. Find our own guidance in this world. Find our own wisdom in this world. Go visit mediums and necromancers. And witch- we, we don't have to do all of that. He breached his faith by not using faith. By not walking into the unknown with the God of the universe who would have led him, had he gone to the Lord to seek guidance. So if you look at that next part of verse 13, he did not keep the command of the Lord. He consulted the medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. And the things of this world will never lead us to the place of comfort and of peace. I was reminded of the story. I've never told you this story, but you might know it. It's historical. Um, in early April, in the Fuhrer bunker, uh, Hitler got a phone call. And it was uh, Joseph Goebbels. If you know history, you know who that is. And he was ecstatic, April 1945. If you know war history, you know kind of where they are. He was ecstatic. How could it be ecstatic? Well, the, uh, the Allies were pressing in on the East. The Russians were pressing in on the West. It did not look like it was going well. But Goebbels was ecstatic because Roosevelt just died. And so he called with that news. And then he said to Hitler, I have consulted with the stars. I have talked with the mediums, but that was a thing that Goebbels would often do. I've consulted with the stars, and the stars have told me that there's going to be a turning point in this war. And now it's awful, but by the end of April, there will be a victory. And he was right. (laughs) Hitler committed suicide April 30th. And when he committed suicide, you know what happened? I've told you this story, but it's been years. When Hitler committed suicide down in the basement of that bunker, the butlers and the maids, a couple floors up, put on music and danced. His own people danced because it was over. We had um, Andrea League's funeral on Friday and Billy Whitehead's funeral yesterday and Scott Chafee's funeral this afternoon. And uh, at the graveside of Andrea, I I always thought that's the moment where it hits you. It's usually private. Everybody leaves. It's just me and the family saying goodbye. And I've often thought, you know what we need to do at this moment? It's so somber and so sad, and you have to go through that. But I also think after you go through that, we should have a tailgate party. Because as a Christian Because we just celebrated the resurrection, if you're a Christian, you can dance on the grave because death has not won. You can make it a party. You can dance because you know in the new heavens, in the new earth, the place where you put your loved one will be an empty hole in the ground because of the resurrection. And that's not blind faith. We do that because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that has proven out historically the fact that God can do it once. He can do it again. And so what's the point? The point is not, don't be Saul, be a David. That's not the point. I hope you know me well enough to know I'm not going to preach that way. Here's the first point, and it's at the end of the first point, which is this. Our God is incredibly long-suffering. That's the first point. Our God is incredible. Think about how kind God is. All the chances he gave to Saul, acquiescing to the people to give them a king. Now, think about all the times you've breached faith. It's, it's easy to sit here in the pews and flip through the Bibles and say, oh, Saul, what a mess. Think about all the times that you sought guidance. Probably not from a medium, probably not from a witch, although I don't know that to be true, but from a self-help book instead of their Bible first. and, and Forming your own opinion before praying. Forming your identity over social media or how your kids are doing, or what school they got into, or what neighborhood you live in, forming your worth over all the things of what this world will say and what this world will tell you should guide you into making you feel comfortable in this world. Think of all the times that you have sought guidance from other things or breached your faith. Now think about, and we're going to pause here, think about how long-suffering God has been to you. How incredibly kind the Lord has been and gracious, putting up, being long-suffering with your complete lack of evangelism, (laughs) never making a disciple, still being wrapped around your bank account that you can't be generous continue to fail in praying. Never reading your Bible except this year when we're forcing you to. And God is so long-suffering. See, if part of what we need to do in sermons is not think about what we need to do, but to force our minds to think more and more and more on who our God is. Now, let me go quickly to this uh, before we go to the next point. The next two points will be shorter. Is Saul in heaven? That's a question that you're probably going to ask in the Stump the Pastors class, the next thing, which I am only doing this out of obedience to the rest of the staff. But nonetheless, let me go ahead and answer this one for you now. Is Saul in heaven? Interestingly, when he... (laughs) And don't ask me about this because I don't know anything else besides what I'm about to tell you. When he goes to the witch of Endor and asks the witch, 1 Samuel 28, if you need to look it up. uh, When he asks the witch to raise up Samuel, uh, she does her whatever. And Samuel apparently appears and it surprised even her because she screamed. (laughs) Like, oh, I didn't think this ever worked. (laughs) Uh, And Samuel's there and I'm, you know beyond that I don't know don't ask me to explain I don't know anything besides what the scripture says except in first Samuel twenty-eight nineteen, interestingly Samuel says to Saul today you and your sons will be with me reflecting the phraseology from jesus to the thief on the cross today you'll be with me so we're not sure what that means but some scholars have said that might be a tip of the hat that uh, saul was going to be with the lord in heaven that in spite of all of this that he's done suicide is not the unforgivable sin you might say well andy the holy spirit was taken from him But if you remember that sermon series I did years ago on the Holy Spirit, the New Testament form of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes with Pentecost, which is prophesied by Jesus in John 16, we sometimes assume that that same indwelling Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit used or the way the Holy Spirit is used in the Old Testament. But it's not so. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come on and off of people. For actually, He rushed upon Samson, who had incredible strength at that moment. He rushed upon Isaiah. He, he, he would come in this periodic, topical way as an act of favor. And so the fact that the Holy Spirit was taken away from Saul doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't a believer. That's why David, in Psalm 51, prays, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So I don't... I don't know. I will say this. When people ask me, is so-and-so in heaven? I'll always say, judge not lest you be judged. How could I possibly answer that question? But I do know this. The God that we serve is slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy. And the thing that we do while we have life and we have breath is we live out heaven's realities now. (laughs) That's why I love this quote from Ed Welch. He said, who am I? I'm beloved by God. He loves me more than I love him. And now I get to love other people more than they love me. It's too bad that Ed Welch wasn't consulting Saul rather than the witches. If he could have said, "Look, you're loved by God. You don't need to get all the other people to love you. Let them love David. Let them. You don't have to off David. You know, so that you can have all the affection of this world. You're loved by God, and out of that love, now you go love other people. We're to live out that reality now, in the light of a long suffering God. Here's the second point: our God is always sovereign." Now, look at verse 14. This is going to create more questions than we're going to have time to solve. We know that Saul committed suicide, but then verse 14 says this. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Did you see this? Therefore, the Lord put him to death. But the Lord didn't run him through with the sword. But he is saying, it's the tip of the hat to saying, look, I am sovereign over all of this. He actually takes credit for it in a sense. The Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. In other words, sovereignty means that God's not going to let Saul's disobedience destroy his plan for how he's going to shepherd his people into the promised land. He's not going to let that happen. Saul's sin was not enough to mess up God's sovereignty, and neither is yours. It's a beautiful thing about God's sovereignty. Your sin, your struggles, your poor decisions, mine as well, can't overrule what God's going to do. And it's, uh, theologically, we call this secondary causation. Big word, we don't have time to go into it, but it's a beautiful picture that theologically God can take any of the mess of our lives and somehow work it together for redemption and for good. Like only he can. So rather than triumphing your triumphs, putting Saul's proverbial head and taking it around and saying, look at all the great things I've done, we can come into the sanctuary of our God and say, look at all the mess I've made. Can you put this back together? Can you somehow redeem this awful sin? Can you, that I'm confessing this morning, can you somehow take this situation that's out of my control? God, you're sovereign. The temptation is to think that we've somehow gone too far. We've somehow messed up so much spiritually that we can't ever find our way back. Like the other day when I was at this restaurant, And I was looking at the Asian salad with chicken. And I was looking at the burger with Swiss cheese. And I would flip. I I read both descriptions multiple times. There's the burger. There's the salad. And I caved. And she said, what do you want? I said, I want the burger. Uh, And she said, do you want everything on it? I said, well, of course, at this point, what's, yes. (laughs) And, And then she said, do you want fries with that? And, and I said, I was feeling chippy because of my own bad decisions. I said, why would I have broccoli? I've already made a horrible choice. And she said, that's a great point. I'll get you extra. I was like, no, don't do that. But you know, we get to that point spiritually, don't we? Where We're like, I've already messed up today. I've already, I, I've already messed up my marriage. I've already messed up this situation. I've already messed up my life. There's no way I can turn it around now. But your sin can't overrule God's sovereign plan. That's why we can believe that there's hope. That's why we can dance on the graves of our loved ones. Because death is not won. Sometimes, as Johnny Erickson Tata says, sometimes God allows what he hates to produce what he loves. And I love this quote. I think it's on the screen from Packer. People treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy. But in Scripture, it's a matter of worship. If you ask, why is this happening? No light might come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. Or as I said to uh, Jim League on Friday afternoon, who was going to bury his wife that afternoon. Now we make it our goal to live and to please the Lord. This is, we didn't want cancer to take her. Nobody wants that. It's not the way that this world's supposed to be. But now we make it our goal to live and to please the Lord because we have a sovereign God. Lastly, God, our God, is a kind shepherd. He's always sovereign, He's incredibly long suffering. Don't let your mind forget the first point, how long suffering and patient God is with you, with me. He's always sovereign, and he's a kind shepherd. Here in this text, David is going to be a a prototype, if you will, of the ultimate shepherd. And there's some language involved with that. If you look at verse 2, God says to the Lord, You shall shepherd the people of Israel, and you shall be a prince over my people of Israel. What's he saying? Well, there's no king. Who's the king? Well, God's supposed to be the king. You're just the prince. You're just the ambassador. But in other words, David, you you take your cues from me, and then you lead the people out from that. Let me be the king, you be the prince, and you be the shepherd there on this earth. And it's a, a prototype of who Jesus is going to be as the ultimate shepherd. Now, why do you need a shepherd? Because we're lost without one do you know sheep i'm not gonna go into the whole sheep thing because sheep are preached on a lot but sheep can lose their flock while they're within eyesight of them we're that stupid people like literally you know on Easter Sunday morning you know the comment i get more than any other comment besides people will say he is risen he is risen indeed you know you go through that liturgy in the hallway and and then almost invariably i'll get 20 or 30 people every Easter Sunday saying this to me you know i really should be back here more and i always say we're going to do it again next Sunday I'll have people say to me, well, I drive by this church all the time. I just need to, You've lost... you're a sheep. You just lost eyesight of where you need to be. In the... it's... it's within the same field. But why don't we like shepherds? Because shepherds don't always tell us exactly where we're going. And so we just trust like Saul was. I'm going to trust cutting my own path through this world. But a shepherd who is promising to lead us to green pastures, by the way? The shepherd says, just follow me, and none of us like that. I mean, who in this room likes a surprise party? Very few of us. Who in this room, if your best friend said, hey, put this blindfold on, would not ask several questions? We, we don't like the unknown, and that's why we don't like to be shepherded. You know what my, maybe my least favorite question is? When somebody, and now y'all are going to all ask me this. When somebody says to me, hey, what are you doing Friday night? Are we picking up trash on the interstate? Are we visiting people in prison? Are we going to a movie? Are we having a dinner party? Like, I have to show you all of my cards before I know what you're asking to do. Like, just tell me what we're going to do. And then I'll try to make up an excuse if I don't want to do it. But don't, but don't say, What are we doing Friday night? It's like that's, it's unknown. I don't want to put myself into your hands. I don't know if I can trust you right now with, with what's coming next. Well, Jesus says, I'm gonna be your good shepherd. And you'll even know where to go. And you'll know how to navigate this life. But I'm gonna be your good, kind shepherd. So seek me with guidance. If you want to turn over. Coming to a close, and then we'll come to this table to John ten, where Jesus talks about this. Here's what he says. Now, I'm going to read it the way you typically hear it, and then I'm going to reread it. John ten, eleven, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd. And he who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches from them and he scatters them. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. When we read Scripture, that's how we hear it. We just read it. And we just imagine that Jesus is giving it like, you know, this British philosophy professor looking out the window. And I am the good shepherd. What if Jesus our kind shepherd actually read this text or actually said this text differently? Would it change the way that you think about him? What if he, what if he said it this way? Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I'm your shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as a father knows me, I know the father. And I lay down my life for you. If you heard that, would you not get up and follow that guy wherever? You wouldn't have a problem. You would say, This man, who is God, by the way, is passionate for me. I'll, I'll follow him wherever he wants me to go. He's just asking me to trust him, but he's the good shepherd. We'll close with this. Sometimes I need a break, just cognitively. This week has been quite the week. Uh, this month has been quite the month, and uh, sometimes I just need a. a, a co- I just need a checkout for a few minutes, but I, I don't have enough time to watch a show. That's an hour. That's, I don't have that much time, so I'll find. Um, I'll find myself down these weird rabbit trails uh, on YouTube, and I. I cannot believe I'm admitting this to you. Uh, But I found myself, I just need like 10 minutes to like check out uh, a little bit during this week and just relax. And I didn't want to go for a run. And so I found myself watching reaction videos on YouTube of different cultures who were listening to Luciana Pavarotti, Pavarotti, uh, Nessun Dorma, uh, listening to Pavarotti for the first time ever. And it that shows, and it's fascinating, like subculture of YouTube, where they're just reacting to listening to the first time this great tenor sing. Almost all of them, you know, these big African-American guys, these, you know, Hispanic women, the, like various cultures that have never heard of them, almost all of them end up in tears. And my favorite one was this uh, younger African-American, a beautiful girl, and she's singing them, and he hits that first note singing that song, and she kind of reacted like that, and then she said... Get it, Luciano? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I At the end, she ends up in tears. Just the beauty of it all, the passion of it all. And from that rabbit trail, I found another one an old song, a reaction video to an old song by Dave Matthews. That I'd heard a million times, but I hadn't really listened to the words. It's a song called Bartender. And in the analogy, the bartender, this guy finds himself in a bar, and the bartender happens to be God. And here's the song. Bartender, you see the wine that's drinking me has come from the vine that strung Judas from the devil's tree, its roots deep, deep in the ground. That's a profound verse. And then he says, bartender, please fill my glass for me with the wine that you gave Jesus that set him free after three days in the ground. And then he sings, I'm on bended knee. Please, please, Father, please. So much better than she loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so much better than that. In other words, life is drinking me. But what I need in this life, says croons Dave Matthews, is I need whatever you gave Jesus. I need death and I need resurrection. I need to die to my sins, and I need to live following you, my good shepherd. So as we come to this table, look at this last, last quote from Thomas Watson. Our sins should humble us, but they must not discourage us from coming to Christ. Sure, your sins should humble you, but they should never discourage you from coming to Christ. And so as we come to this communion table, we come to this table where we remember the death and the resurrection of Christ. And it's a a remembrance of his sacrifice, the long-suffering, always sovereign, good, kind shepherd. And I'm not going to suggest that when you come down these aisles, you dance. But if you want to, I'm open to it. But at least in your heart, metaphorically, let your heart sing this morning with praise and adoration of who our God is. And as you come to this table to take these small tastes of bread and wine, remember, friends, it's going to be okay. God's got his plan. He is sovereign. We're a part of it, and he's a kind shepherd who's going to lead us home. Now, Father, we pray that you would give us